Titus chapter 3, we are continuing Paul's letter here, but uh, I want to begin with a word of prayer, ask the Lord for help as we study his word, and then uh, I want to get into a couple of verses this morning uh, that I think will be important to us. So let's pray together as we look into the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We have the opportunity to, uh, to own it, to read it, to study it, to meditate upon it. We are so privileged. Throughout most of history, we admit, we confess that you have given us a privilege most, most believers have never had, to have the Bible in their own language, in their own possession. Uh, and we have this privilege. I pray that you would help us not to take it for granted. Help us as we read it and study it this morning to understand it. And I pray that you would do the work of, of applying it to our hearts and our lives in a way that meets our needs. And so convict us of sin, encourage our faith, guide us in the way that we ought to go. We pray that you glorify yourself in all of it. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus chapter 3, in verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes this to Titus. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. This is a faithful saying, he says. What is Paul talking about here? What is he, what is he discussing? Well, if we realize we're jumping right into the middle of a passage here, right in the middle of the chapter as Paul is discussing something. But over the last few weeks, we've considered what he has already said to Titus. And what Titus is to do, Titus is to be reminding the people on Crete and the churches there of some things that they need to remember. Things that are easy to forget. Right? He is to remind them to how to live. Verses 1 and 2. Remind them how they're supposed to live. He's to remind them of how they used to live, right? Before they became Christians, before they were born again. He is to remind them how they were saved. Remember how we were saved, verses 4 through 7. The love, the the kindness of God has appeared. Not by our works of righteousness, but it's his mercy that moved him to save us. By pouring out his spirit on us to wash us, to give us new life and renew us. And to give us the inheritance that comes with being a a son or daughter of God. These are faithful sayings. These are things that you need to remember. Titus, Paul says, this is a faithful saying. It is something that is trustworthy. And Titus, you're supposed to affirm it constantly. So that's what we've done the last couple weeks. I said I was taking my cues from this passage. I'm going to remind you of the things that God, that Paul, rather tells Titus to remind them of. So I'm doing that to you. I'm reminding you. 
And Paul says he's supposed to continue to do that. But you know, I was thinking this week about what Paul is saying here in verse 8 and then on verses 9, 10, 11, we're going to look at in a minute. And I realized that there are, there are some, some times and some, some people we think about that we, we really want to make sure that they stay focused on what's important. You know, you may not know this, but when I was in school, at one point in time, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a surgeon. That was a, a, a dream that I had. Okay? I'm not sure how I would have done that with my big hands, how that would have worked. Okay? Um, God had other plans for me. But, you know, when you go into surgery and you're laying there on the table and the surgeon is preparing to do surgery, uh, you really want to make sure that he's focused on the right things, right? I mean, you don't want him worrying about uh, what music is on the iPod at that moment. You don't want him worrying about how he looks in his scrubs and his, you know, his cap and his mask. You don't want him worrying about whatever he's going to have for dinner that night. You want him focused on what's important. You, right? That's where you want him to focus. You want him to keep the main thing the main thing. Well, surgeons, those are some people that we want to be focused. I was thinking, you know, I, I don't mind. I, I, I hope that the garbage man stays focused when he's doing his job because I don't like garbage thrown all over my yard. Now, it's not life and death situation, but I still hope that when he's driving the truck, that he's keeping the main thing the main thing, and he's paying attention to what he's doing, and he's not off daydreaming or thinking about whatever else. I've driven a big truck, by the way. You've got to pay attention to what you're doing. I, there was one, one time. At the end of the day, when I was kind of tired, and I wasn't really paying close attention, and I came up to a stoplight, and there was a car in front of me. It was an old couple in a Buick. And, uh, and I, I, wasn't, I, I would stop behind him, and then I just wasn't paying close attention. And I had let my foot off the brake just ever so slightly, and it began to roll forward, and I wasn't paying attention. I didn't realize it. And I just bumped into the back of the trunk of their Buick. Well, you know, an 80,000-pound concrete mixer um, bumping into the back end of a Buick, it, it left a mark. And so the old guy, you know, I can see him in the window. He looks back at me and points his finger over to the side, and he pulls over, and, you know, I gave him the insurance information, and it was taken care of. But you've got to pay attention to what you're doing, right? You've got to stay focused on what matters. That's the idea. And I would submit to you that what Paul is saying here to Titus, and through Titus, what Paul is saying to us as a church and to me as a pastor, and to you as an individual Christian, Paul is saying you've got to keep the main thing the main thing. You've got to remember to focus. You've got to remember to keep the main thing the main thing. Focus on what's important. And I would submit that it's more important for us as a church to keep the main thing the main thing than it even is for the surgeon who's doing surgery. Why? Because we're talking about eternal matters. We're talking about the truth 
of the Word of God that has an impact on people's eternal life, their eternal soul. Far more significant than just what happens in this earthly life is what will happen after this life is done. And if we don't get this right, if we somehow lose sight of what matters most, there is eternity at stake for some. There's eternal reward at stake for some. So this is a very serious and important thing. Well, Paul explains to Titus that you've got to keep the main thing, the main thing. And he does it in a very simple way. Verse 8, he tells him positively what is he supposed to focus on. And verses 9 through 11, he tells him negatively what are you not supposed to get distracted by. That's what I want to do this morning. I just want to take a couple minutes to look at these verses and, and, and see what it is that we're supposed to focus on and what it is that we're supposed to avoid. Look at verse 8. This is a faithful saying. These things that I've told you, this is faithful. It's trustworthy. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. Titus, Paul is saying, I've left you there on Crete. I gave you specific instructions. We won't, you don't have to turn there necessarily, but back in chapter 1 and verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Paul had left Titus there, and he had given him specific instructions, and this letter is a follow-up to the instructions. It's Paul giving detail and reminding Titus, what are, your, what are you supposed to be doing there? I left you there for a reason. You're supposed to set in order the things that are lacking. You're supposed to set right the church. Because the church in Crete, when Paul left, was apparently not yet completely established and ordered as it needed to be. So Titus, you've got this job to do. And part of that involves Titus continually affirming certain truths. Titus, you know, I think it's interesting that Paul was not in any way embarrassed to tell Titus what he was supposed to preach. <laughs> Titus, you're supposed to preach this over and over. Repeat it. Constantly affirm it. What? What is he supposed to be affirming constantly? That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. This is the message of the of the letter of Titus in a nutshell. And we've come back to this message over and over again from chapter 1 now to chapter 3. It's all throughout. And it's simply this, that when you have believed in God, when you have trusted in Christ, then you are supposed to be about the practice of good works. In other words, if you've believed in Christ, if you've trusted in Him, if the gospel has entered into your life and your soul, it should change you. And it should be lived out in real, practical, tangible ways. That's what Paul has, has explained. In chapter 1, it's all about leadership. right? It's about having the right leadership. The qualified leaders. And here's the standards, Paul says. Here's the standards they have to abide by. These are the kind of men that need to be leaders in the church. And then they're supposed to oppose all of these people. 
who are not qualified to be leaders in the church. Chapter 2, it's the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women. How is the church supposed to train the next generation? It's supposed to be the older ones who learn and have demonstrated these habits of godly living, and then they in turn pass them on, and the younger ones receive it willingly. That's the model. That's supposed to be the the. The method or the the institution is supposed to be structured in that way. That the older are to help instruct the younger and set an example for them by their behavior. In chapter 3, he's continuing with the same truth. I've jumped ahead though, because in chapter 2 we already talked about verse 11 through the end of that chapter, through verse 15. It's the grace of God. Right? That has appeared, bringing salvation and training us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live righteously in this present age. So, what is Paul saying? <laughs> Titus, you need to remind them over and over, affirm constantly, strongly declare these truths. Strongly declare, verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So here's what we're supposed to preach on. We're supposed to preach on Jesus Christ who came to earth. That the love of God would appear. This was a preach on God who in his mercy has saved us, not according to our good works. He continues there in verse 5, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Savior. Preach that the Holy Spirit has come into you and therefore you have new life and, and the Holy Spirit is renewing you. This is the process of your life now as Christians. That the Holy Spirit is working to renew you, to transform you. And of course, to preach that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have been declared righteous by God, and you have been declared to be an heir, an inheritor. And you have the hope of eternal life that guarantees you will receive your inheritance. These are to be the subject of Titus's preaching. By extension, the preaching of the elders that Titus would appoint on Crete. And then passing down through them to us today. So I take this very seriously. I'm actually really thankful that this verse is here. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. Because as your pastor, I don't have to wonder what should I do each week. I don't have to wonder, what should I prepare? What should I speak? I know, Paul has said, affirm constantly these things. Affirm the gospel. Affirm the effects of the gospel in the lives of Christians. Affirm and continually remind the people of 
who they have believed in, and what that means. That's really what he's saying here. And so I put it this way, positively, we are to focus on the gospel and its effects. We're to focus on the gospel and its effects. That's what the letter of Titus is continually coming back to here. Paul says, those who believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Careful means that you're supposed to you're supposed to think about it. It's, it's supposed to be thoughtful. We don't just do good things. We, we thoughtfully do them. We think about them. We, we plan to do them. It, it's what I said back in verse 1, where Paul says there, we're to be ready for every good work. There's that sense of being prepared to do good things, prepared to do good works, And that means that we're thoughtful, we're thinking ahead, we're careful, we're intentional in how we live our life. I will admit that there are times when, my wife will will attest to this, but there are times when I can be impulsive, I suppose would be a way to put it. And I don't think that's really fair, but... There are times when I will, will, will come up with an idea and I'll say, hey, we should do this. And it kind of is out of the blue. Okay? The last time that I remember doing that was back in August, right before we left on vacation, when I texted her and said, hey, what do you think about hosting a foreign exchange student? <laughs> I'm not really crazy, okay? I know we've got a new baby in the house. We've got five of us, five kids already and a full house already and we're going on vacation and everything, but just, you know, and it seems like an impulsive thing. I texted her that just kind of out of the blue. We hadn't talked about it. We did discuss it at that point. Decided to do it. I'm thankful that we did. But that decision was born out of a great deal of intentional thought that she and I have put together over the years that we've been married. Intentional thought. How can we reach out to others? How can we minister and help and do good to others? thinking back this week about the time that we've been together and some of the opportunities that God has given us to minister to others and to do good. I was thinking about when we lived in New Mexico and uh, we were able to befriend a lady that lived across the street from us. She's kind of a a quirky lady and uh, you know, didn't dress very, very well and the apartment she lived in was pretty dirty and cluttered with stuff and you know, just not really the kind of person that we would, maybe would have naturally gravitated toward with our kids. And yet, you know, we had the opportunity to become friends with her, minister to her when she went to the hospital. We were able to minister to her when her brother and sister-in-law had moved in with her in this little apartment. And then he died suddenly. And we were able to be there to minister to her and encourage her pray with her, be a part of that, help to help her out on several occasions. I'm thinking about a, another girl, girl, it's a young mother, she was a girl, was married to a guy who was a drug addict, who was 
not working and providing for his family, and they were living in an apartment that was a mess and just a really bad situation. She didn't know the first thing about anything. She didn't know how to cook. She didn't know how to clean. She didn't know how to take care of her, of her home. She didn't know anything. We befriended her. My wife taught her how to cook, even put together a cookbook for her. We gave her at Christmas time with some, some kitchen tools, you know, spoons and bowls and measuring cups and stuff like that we bought for her, gave to her, tried to help her, you know, invite her and her, her and her daughter came over for, to eat with us and to learn to cook with my wife and, you know, just the, the opportunity we had to, 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 to work with her. I sat down and was able to do Bible study with her. She had made a profession of faith in Christ and we were able to, to, to do Bible study and talk about some basic, basic elements of the Christian life. What does it mean to be a Christian and how do we live? I'm thinking about a girl that came to live with us here a couple years ago, lived with us for six months. She was up here from Tennessee in the middle of January, had no place to stay. Thought somehow that she could go to Maranatha, the Bible college up in Watertown, and could bunk in with her friend from high school or whatever, from years before. That was a kind of a silly idea. That wasn't going to happen. And then we took her in. She lived with us for six months. I, I don't tell you these things to brag. You guys know that. You know better than that. I could list a number of these similar kinds of things that I know about you, that numbers of you have done in ministering to others and caring for others and in, in giving of yourselves to do good to others who had no, no possibility of ever paying you back, who you did good for them and, and, and never asked for anything in return. That's what Paul says is supposed to characterize us who have believed. If we have believed, we ought to be careful, he says, to maintain good works. The word maintain means to devote yourselves to. It, it, it's, it has the idea of your occupation. And most of us, when we talk with someone and we meet, we say, well, well, what do you do for a living? Well, this is my occupation, and we share what our occupation is. Paul says that as Christians, as believers, our occupation is supposed to be with good works. Now, he's not saying we should quit our jobs and all just go, okay, let's go like wandering around and do good things. He's saying this is supposed to be a primary focus of our lives. We're going to keep the main thing the main thing. And what is that? We believe the gospel and then we live like it. That's what it means. Positively. As individual Christians, as a church, that needs to be our focus. That we believe the gospel and we live like it. As pastor, it needs to be my focus. That I believe the gospel and that I live like it. That I continually affirm it and remind you of it over and over again. In the strongest possible terms that Jesus Christ has come to bring salvation. But more than that, he's come to transform you. That you would be a new creature in Christ. And notice what he says at the end of verse 8. These things are good and profitable to men. There is real benefit to men, to others, when we live in the reality of the gospel. 
it actually produces tangible good in this world to others. You can be the instrument that God uses to minister good to someone else, someone in need. You can be the instrument God uses to benefit, to encourage, to help, and to strengthen someone else. I think that the the emphasis of that last line there, these things are good and profitable to men, I think what Paul is saying or suggesting here is this needs to go beyond just the four walls of the church building. It needs to go outside of just the congregation. Our good works need to be more than just good for each other. I mean, we should do good to each other. That is certainly a biblical concept. I believe it's the book of Galatians where Paul says that we're to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. If it's not Galatians, it's Thessalonians or one of the other ones that I can't remember right off the top of my head. Yeah, I didn't look the verse up. But we're supposed to do good to those of the household of faith. That's, that's good, but not just here. We need to be occupied with doing good works. There's a public testimony that's involved here. We have opportunities with neighbors, with coworkers, with family, with people that we meet. You know, Peggy, I'll just pick on Peggy. She was at, she goes to the, to, to the gym and she works out in the pool. And then afterwards she sits there and she just reads her Bible. And the conversations, the opportunities that she has to, to talk with people, to pray with people, to pray for them. It's good. Because they're, 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 there's, a, there's a great testimony there of care, of concern, of love for others that's shown. And, and all, all it is is just living out that life. Jesus Christ has changed me. Jesus Christ has done a work in me. And I'm going to live that way. I want to show it. By doing these good works, by occupying myself with these good works. Again, the order here, I just want to point this out because I never want to miss this, but the order here is important. Paul says we have believed in God and therefore we occupy ourselves with good works. We never switch the order around. We don't do the good works for salvation. We do the good works because we've been saved, because of the gospel. This is the effect of the gospel. We, We receive the truth and then it changes us. This is what our focus is supposed to be. So if we're going to focus on this, if we're going to keep the main thing, the main thing, Paul says we've got to focus on living out the gospel. Having believed in God, we occupy ourselves with good works. And so you'll pardon me as your pastor if I do everything that I can to maintain that focus in my preaching, in my teaching, in my ministry. That's what it needs to be. And we, I can't allow myself to be distracted. We can't allow ourselves as a church to be distracted. You can't allow yourself as a Christian to be distracted from this focus, the gospel and its effect in your life and the lives of others. That's where our focus needs to be. But notice how he continues because Paul then gives the negative. He says, verse 9, but avoid foolish disputes genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning 
being self-condemned. Here's some things for us to avoid. There's really two things here that Paul kind of emphasizes. He says, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. The first thing that he says we're supposed to avoid or turn away from is divisive issues. Divisive issues. Now, we need to understand what exactly these things are. There are questions that people ask. Some people like to ask a lot of questions. Asking questions is not a problem. Paul's not saying if somebody asks a lot of questions, then, they're, then avoid them. Paul's not saying if there's somebody you disagree with, avoid them. Paul's not saying if there's somebody you don't like, avoid them. Those aren't in this at all. He says avoid foolish disputes. Questions is that word there, disputes. But the the word foolish is important because he qualifies here what kind of things we're supposed to avoid. That word foolish is the word that we get our word moron from, okay, or moronic. It has the idea here of completely ignorant, baseless. There's no factual basis whatsoever. These are disputes or questions that are completely ignorant and foolish. They're stupid questions. And I know that you probably have heard it said before, there's no such thing as a stupid question. I used to be a teacher, and I understand in a classroom, you want to try and get your students to ask questions. You don't want them to be quiet. So you try to, you try to say, no, no, Johnny, you know, there's no such thing as a silly question. That's not exactly true. This is not. Uh, you, you don't need to know how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. You don't need to know if God can make a rock that's too big for him to lift. Those are, are silly questions. Stupid questions, to be quite honest. They have no basis whatsoever in fact. They don't lead to any truth. In fact, they're they're, they're questions that are asked with the purpose and intention of causing division and, and trouble. They're not serious questions. Paul is not saying that anybody who asks questions is to be avoided or is a problem or a troublemaker. What he's saying is that there are kinds of questions that should be avoided. There are things, uh, different kind of conspiracy theories that always come up. In fact, Christmas time is a great time of year because invariably somebody will write an article in the paper or in a news outlet somewhere about some, uh, you know, you've heard about them, you know, the, the, the lost gospel of Thomas or, or you know, oh, uh, the, these, the, the, you know, the, the book of Enoch, that was one we, we dealt with a couple of years ago because somebody uh, was here uh, at the church and, and, and was asking a lot of questions about the book of Enoch and very, very much concerned about that. And we, I, I tried to talk with them and, and explain it, you know, but, but really we didn't spend a lot of time there. But, but things like that, disputes. In fact, I just came across one the other day. I think I have a picture of it here. This is from Fox News, although it's on every news outlet. I just happened to find it on, on this website. Ancient forbidden Christian text of Jesus' secret teachings to his brother found. Well, 
every year at Christmas time, every year at Easter, you'll see headlines like this. Uh, it's based on a minuscule amount of fact and then a lot of, you know, rhetoric built up around that. If you've seen, anybody see this? Anybody see this or hear about this this week? I know Greg mentioned it to me the other day. Well, you need to be on, online more. Look at, no, I'm kidding. But um, no, but the, this, is a, this is a headline this week, okay? A couple of uh, researchers who were digging through some archives in a library somewhere, and they came across a couple of fragments of uh, an ancient Greek manuscript, the Apocalypse of James. The first Apocalypse of James, not... Not to be confused with the second apocalypse of James. The first apocalypse of James. Uh, listen, it's not even a Christian writing. Okay. I mean, I know what it says, the apocalypse of James, the brother of Jesus, blah, blah. It's, it's not hidden or secret. Um, it's been well-known, well-documented, published a number of years ago, available to anybody who wanted to read it and find it if you really want to. You can find it online. Search, Just do a Google search. You can find it. Read it yourself you'll recognize it right away that it has nothing to do with Christianity. It's just, it's not. It's not an earth-shaking, you know, conspiracy by the church that hid these books away from us. But you see these kind of headlines all the time. Just to answer what this is, they they discovered the only fragments of Greek manuscript of this. They already had it in other languages. So it's the first time I've ever discovered it in Greek. But that's the headline. Listen, there's nothing here. I mean, it's interesting for a few people who have these really esoteric uh, studies, you know, in ancient, you know, mystical literature, but that's about it. And yet, we're tempted at times to get caught up in things like this. You know, a few years ago, there was a really popular book. You may have read it or been familiar with it. Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. He's a novelist who wrote the story and this whole thing about all these ancient, you know, other other gospels that were hidden away by the church. And it was kind of a fun story. I read it. It was an interesting story. It was just that. A lot of fiction. A lot of made-up stuff. But some people really took it seriously. Dan Brown takes it seriously, the, the writer, even though he, it's a lot of stuff that's made up. The point is that we can't allow ourselves to get distracted by that. There's always opportunities for us to get distracted by these kind of things. These are, this is something I would put in the category of a foolish dispute, a moronic question. Oh, have we, have we somehow missed, uh, you know, this, this letter? Was this really James writing to Jesus or really Jesus writing to James? I mean, should we have this in our Bible? No, this is, this is a ridiculous, it, if, if you, it's, it's just, it's, it's a silly thing. We shouldn't waste our time on it. We shouldn't get distracted by it. More than that, he talks here about genealogies. The genealogies um, suggest to us here that, that he's, he's hinting at what the problem was in Crete, uh, which he, he mentioned back in chapter 1, by the way. Uh, chapter 1 and verse 14, he talked, about, uh, he talked about Titus about not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men which turn, which turn from the truth. Genealogies, it was very apparently very popular for the Jewish people to read back those genealogies in the Old Testament and, and, and come up with all sorts of fanciful explanations and descriptions of, well, gaps. And then we, if there's gaps in there, then we can fill in the names and then come up with the names of the people and then come up with stories about the people that were left out. And it was a whole 
you know, cottage industry there. Paul's not telling Titus, don't read the genealogies in Scripture. It's not giving you an excuse to skip over the first nine chapters of First Chronicles, although maybe you'd like to do that sometimes. What he's saying is, again, the Old Testament genealogies, the New Testament genealogies, I mean, Luke, Matthew record genealogies of Christ. They're there for a reason. They're not there to cause us to have speculation and, and make up all sorts of mythology and have lots of questions that bring doubt to our mind about our Christian faith. They're supposed to be there to reinforce the historical nature of the Bible that we would know we're dealing with, with real historical documents here, not things that were just made up by people. So Paul says, listen, avoid these things that cause trouble, that cause strife and division, because then he talks about contentions and strivings about the law. And again, why, is, why do we have the Old Testament law? It's not to cause contention and division and fights and arguments. It's not something to argue about. We should understand it. But when we don't understand it, then it produces all sorts of controversy and strivings and fights. And Paul says, listen, these things are to be avoided. We're not supposed to spend our time worrying about all of these little rules and regulations from the Old Testament law and, and trying to understand and, and, and track down every kind of silly and foolish speculation that's out there. If you do that, you'll be always doing that because there's, there's more out there than you can imagine that is off the wall and absurd. Some of you I know, because I know you, you know that because you know people who've gone into that stuff. You know Christians who've gotten into that stuff. Who their whole life, their whole, is, is warped by that stuff. Paul says, avoid it. Turn away from it. So if we're going to, if we're going to keep the main thing, the main thing, we're going to focus on the gospel, then we have to turn away from all of these other uh, fanciful and distracting things. But there's also, uh, well... There's also another problem in verse 10. He says, reject a divisive man. Not only do we have to turn away from divisive issues, we have to turn away from divisive people. This is, again, we need to understand what is he talking about here. This is not somebody who has a disagreement with us. This is not somebody who even has necessarily a theological disagreement. I think the old King James translates this with the word heretic. Which is, which is what the word is, but it's a word that has changed its usage. We have used the word heretic now to mean anybody who believes something other than kind of the standard church, you know, teaching. But specifically, the idea here has to do with somebody who is, is of his own choice, he's following his own opinion rather than the truth. And more than that, he's a divisive person. He's someone who is trying to gather around himself support. He's trying to draw other people into the controversy that he himself has, has embraced. So that's the issue here. Paul says, listen, if there's a man who is divisive, somebody who not only do they, do they go after these things from verse 9, the foolish speculations and genealogies and contentions, but... They're also actively trying to get other people to, to, to join their side. We see this happen in churches. Or someone starts to gather together a cadre of, 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 of people in the church 
to, to, to maybe subvert the church leadership, to push an agenda of a certain issue or a certain thing that's not the main thing. Paul says, in that case, <coughs> when we're dealing with a person who is divisive, who is intentionally trying to create factions in the church by, by per- pursuing this, this off agenda, Paul says, reject him. But notice, reject him after. After what? He mentions something here. He says, the first and second admonition. I think this is important because if we were to take time to go back, we don't have time right now, but in Matthew 18, Jesus teaches about how the church is supposed to handle disagreements, issues, offenses within the congregation, right? Jesus says, if your brother offends you, you're supposed to go to him alone. And then if he doesn't listen to you, then you take with you two or three, uh, you know, another, another person or two to have witnesses. And then if he won't listen to you, then you can bring it before the church. And if he won't listen to the church, then Paul said, or Jesus says, then you treat him as if he's an unbeliever. I wrote about that in the pastor's pulse this week. I think that's what Paul has in mind here. It's not like we just go from zero to dynamite, you know, and we just go, okay, you know, this is it. We're going to just, we, Paul says, listen, first you, you're going to go to him and you're going to admonish. And then you're going to do it again if he doesn't listen the first time. Why? Because you don't know his heart. You don't know his heart. So you go to him the first time and you talk to him and you say, listen, brother, this is what the truth is. This is what the focus needs to be. This is where we need to be at. And if he persists, then you go to him again. And after having gone to him and saying, listen, we can't allow ourselves to be distracted by all of these other things. <coughs> Paul says in verse 11, we know that such a person is warped and sinning, (coughs) being self-condemned. He's warped. This is somebody who has not just gotten caught up in something like, uh, you know, speculation about some issue. (coughs) But even though he's been confronted with the truth, lovingly embraced, say, brother, I I need to talk to you. This is an important issue. We've got to focus on what's important. We've got to stay focused on the gospel. We've got, to, we've got to preach the truth. We've got to stay there. But when he, when he refuses to hear the correction, when he refuses to hear the truth, <clears throat> Paul says that is an indication that he's warped. He's twisted. And he's sinning. Because now he's refusing to hear the truth. And he is self-condemned, Paul says. We're self-condemned when we refuse to listen to the correction of the truth of the Word of God. Now, my experience, having grown up in church and being involved in church my whole life, and my own experience as a sinner, is that when I am involved in sin and when I have followed, gone on that trail away from what's right, I'm usually not really interested in hearing from someone that what I'm doing is wrong. That's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. We have to have that, we have to have that gentle admonition 
of one another in the church where we say, listen, this is the truth. This is what's right. You need to respond to the truth. And as believers, we need to be sensitive to, to the truth of the word of God so that when, we, when it's pointed out to us that we have strayed from that truth, we realize it's not a personal attack. It's not somebody treating us harshly. It's, it's a brother or sister who loves us enough to say, hey, you know what? I'm seeing something in you or I'm hearing something from you that's concerning. And not only that, but you're being divisive. You're, 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 you're pushing this agenda publicly. You're starting to, to challenge people to take sides. And this is wrong. And Paul says, if a man refuses to hear that point reject him turn away from that divisive person the question this morning that i have to ask is what's your focus are you focused on the gospel are you focused on what jesus christ has done for you what the holy spirit of god is doing in you what god the father has promised for you that should be the focus of your life That should be the focus of our church. That should be my focus as your pastor in my preaching and teaching. If it's something else, then we've gotten gotten off track somewhere. If something else has become the main thing, then we've got a problem. And we need to come back to this. We need to turn away from those divisive issues. We need to turn away from divisive people. And we have done that at times as a church. And even as individuals, sometimes we have to choose. You know what? I, I just can't spend a lot of time with this person who's they're just constantly trying to pull me into some controversy. I can't do that. Sometimes we have to make those decisions because we've got to focus on what's important. Keep the main thing the main thing. I hope that you'll consider yourself this morning, even as I consider myself, and ask the Lord to help us to see where our focus is this morning. Let's pray.